Hi, this is Mike with episode 32 of Getting Everyone Moving, brought to you by Palms to Pines Parasports. Today we have Doug Jones, who's very involved with the National Wheelchair Basketball Association. Hey, Doug. Hey there, how are you? Good, good, good. Hey, so how did you get involved with uh, wheelchair basketball? Okay. Um, gosh, I have to think back a long way on that. Um, I, you know, I acquired my disability as a high school student, so... Uh, you know, in 1974. So relatively shortly thereafter, I began to hear a little bit about wheelchair basketball. In fact, when I was in the, uh, uh, in the hospital, uh, in, you know, acute care after the initial uh, injury, I had a roommate who was a wheelchair basketball player who was, who was in the hospital addressing a, a pressure sore. So I got a little bit of a, a feel that it existed. And you know, I was, you know, like most people at that point in time, marginally interested, but a little more focused right then on just, you know, the the immediacy of my current situation. Um, so once the dust settled a little bit, um, and I, I heard a little bit more from someone else about wheelchair basketball, and I had always been a very active um, athlete, you know, prior to my injury. In fact, my injury was, was a, a sports-related injury. Um, I... I, I kind of tuned in then and I went out to a practice or two with the Orlando uh, Orange Wheels back then. Um, but, but only a couple practices because then I went away to college in Texas. Um, after two years of college in Texas, when I transferred back uh, to Florida and to the University of Florida, there was a wheelchair basketball team called the North Florida Renegades in Gainesville, Florida. So in you know the 1980-81 season, was my first season and um, you know, and that group welcomed me out and, and, and got me started and, and, and taught me the ropes. So, um, so I got involved then, you know, played a number of years um, and then transitioned as, as some of us do into coaching. And then after coaching have transitioned into more of an administrative role with the, with the NWBA. After you were injured, um, was there a period of time where you felt Kind of depressed, like, what am I going to do? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I think I was more in a state of, of kind of shock and disbelief. You know, um, the nature of my injury was kind of unusual. I didn't, I didn't have a fracture. So, so even though the the physicians um, told me that they thought it was very likely that it was a permanent uh, injury, um, I, I didn't really believe them for the first six months or so. And I, you know, I kept thinking, you know, one day I'm going to wake up and my body's going to have recovered. So, so by the time that it had dawned on me that they were, that they knew what they were talking about, um, I had already started making some transitions into, you know, life as a person that was a wheelchair user. So, um, so like everybody, I'm, I, I'm certain I had um, days to where it was upsetting and, and disappointing and, and, you know, uh, and all of those negative emotions. Um, but I think I was fortunate in that I moved through those maybe a little more quickly than most folks. Um, you know, I grew up in a family and there was um, a lot of family support, which helped, but also there was no real martyrs in our family. <laughs> you know, this, you know, this is, I, I'm, this isn't a direct quote from my, my mom, but I remember, you know, her response was something to the effect of this is, really, really an unfortunate thing that happened, you know, let's cry for an hour and, and get on with life, you know, so, 
Um, uh, you know, and that's an oversimplification, but I, but I do know that we, I, I came from a very forward looking family. So, um, so I was, uh, supported and encouraged to, to pay more attention to what was next than what was behind me. Um, beside your family, um, were your friends pretty supportive of you? How, how did they kind of help you to, you know, keep yeah, going? Yeah. That's, that's a really interesting question because, you know, I was actually just talking about that dynamic with a, uh, you know, one of my college roommates, nephew uh, in the Dallas area just had a spinal cord injury and he's 23. And among the things we chatted about on a Zoom call yesterday was, was this exact dynamic. And so, uh, you know, I think the challenge is this. I think, I think many of our friends who have known us as an able-bodied person they don't know what's the right thing to do. Okay. So, so there's a tendency to be polite, but to be careful. And, um, you know, they don't want to offend you. You know, uh, you know, I remember friends, one friend saying to me one time, Hey, we're going to walk. Oh, I mean, we're going to go up to the store, you know, and I just kind of chuckled and said, the word walk doesn't send me into a, you know, into a tailspin. And, um, but that, especially back when I was first injured, there was so little experience that people had with persons with disabilities that that what was just caution in other people's minds felt like being abandoned, you know, in, you know, in maybe my mind and, and people who had acquired disabilities, you know, and you have certain things you do with your friend groups, you know, whether it's fishing or or, you know, we would go down to the sandlot and, and play, you know, and play baseball. And people don't know what you can and can't do. So they, you know, they politely check in with you, but they go on with their lives. So, so it became my responsibility. And it took me a while to figure that out, that I needed to, to message my friends with, with a message that said, I'm not emotionally fragile. You know, this is an adventure for me and for you, I understand that, you know, let's give each other um, a cushion to make mistakes, you know, without it being catastrophic. And, um, you know, and I would like to be included, even if I just go to the sandlot and, and watch, you know, or coach, you know, or we figure out a way that I can play first base because I don't have to have as much range, you know, so, um, so sometimes we have to own the responsibility of someone with a with a new disability to, to educate our friends and make our friends comfortable. Um, you know, and, and it's not always easy because we got a lot on our plate, but the bottom line is it, we really need to do it because we, you know, we have more to gain by continuing to be a part of a broader community rather than just retreating into a, a safer, smaller sphere. Has anything ever stopped you then from, you know, just leading a full life and doing whatever it is that you want to do with your life? Yeah, yeah, I, there's, there's certainly things that are insurmountable obstacles here and there, you know. Um, you know, maybe if I had wanted to be a, a roofer, you know, or, you know, or um, even honestly, you know, there may be somebody that disagrees with this, but but a, a orthopedic surgeon, you know, or something, you know, that requires, um, even for someone that's pretty functionally independent and, and, and physically capable, like I am, there's certain types of things that, 
you know, that, that you don't do exactly the same way. So, you know, and I can make a laundry list of things. You know, one of my good friends taught my kids to ride a bicycle, you know, because they could run along beside them, you know, and little things like that, that are sometimes iconic in our minds, um, maybe hurt a little bit and are things that we, that will cause us to feel badly about the circumstance. But if we circle back and think mostly about the bigger picture things, you know, the ability to have a family, you know, uh, you know, spouse, kids, um, uh, a successful career, a good friend group, most of those very core type of things that give us happiness in our lives are, are available just with some types of, you know, of modifications. And, and, you know, and I'm careful sometimes not to group every disability together, um, you know, because, you know, I'm a T7 paraplegic and I'm, and I'm incomplete um, and I'm pretty functional. You know, I lived, I was single until I was, till I was 28. And um, actually till I was 31, I met my wife when I was 28 and I lived on my own and, um, and, and took care of virtually everything I needed taken care of. Um, but I know that I'm, you know, in the regular world may group all of us together, quadriplegics, paraplegics, yeah. amputees, but the reality is someone who is, you know, is a C5 quad has a different set of, of right. boundaries than, than a T7 paraplegic has. So, um, you know, so I try and, and, you know, keep that in context. And, and for me, it's almost always been about functional independence. That's a, a, a term I like to the degree that I can be accountable and responsible for everything for myself, you know, the better, um, you know, and of course the reality is I can't on everything, you know, if, if a limb falls on the roof of my house, you know, I'm going to find one of my friends, you know, to run up there and get it. And I'm going to try and swap out, you know, not formally, but informally, I'm going to look for a way, you know, can I run to the airport and pick up one of his family members when he's busy, you know, something that trades it off. But, um, yeah. but, you know, that ends up being kind of the, the, the sort, you know, if there's, if I said there was two sources of occasional frustration for me, you know, one is some of the basic tasks that an able-bodied person might be able to do that I don't, you know, maybe it's hanging a picture on the wall in my office, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. you know, and, um, and it's a small thing, but it's annoying because if I wanted to, do, if I could do it, I would do it the minute that I wanted to do it and I'd put it exactly where I want, you know, whereas once you start soliciting help, you, you know, you need to be considerate of their time and availability. And if they say, what do you think about over here? You can't really say, you know, I wasn't really asking for your opinion. I just wanted you to, <laughs> to do my, you know, my work, my, you know, so that piece. And then the other thing that is occasionally a source of frustration is, is if somebody is um, limiting or patronizing to me, you know, um, yeah. you know, uh, I know what I can and can't do. And I, and I do realize that people are typically well-meaning but, you know, if I, maybe I'm heading for a certain table at a restaurant and somebody says, um, hey, hey, over here, you know, we've got a spot for people in wheelchairs. And I'm like, well, thanks, but I don't want to sit over there. You know, I want to sit over here near the window, you know, and usually they're fine with that or, or getting on a shuttle van that has a lift, 
you know, at an airport. Yeah. I would rather get on that shuttle van um, facing forward because I know how to do it and that works for me. But who, the people running it have been trained to make me turn around the other way, yeah. you know. And then I, I always want to say to them, you know, I've been doing this about 40 years now. You know, <laughs> which one of us do you think knows, you know, um, but, they, but I have to return to the fact that they've been trained by somebody. And if they let me do it another way and something bad happens, yeah. <laughs> they're the one that's going to lose their job, not me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What about, let's talk a little bit about accessibility in the United mm -hmm. States. I mean, mm -hmm. I've lived overseas, so I've seen, you know, major mm -hmm. issues, but what do you see in terms of areas where we need to improve in the United States? Yeah. You know, that's a great question because, you know, I was, I became a wheelchair user in 1974. So I had 16 years of experience before ADA. Yeah. Okay. And then I've lived through the, the development of ADA and the transition, you know, of, of, of the, you know, the impacts that ADA has had now for 30 years. And, um, you know, so for a little piece of context, I want to say sometimes I have to be careful uh, with my friends who are maybe stronger and more vocal advocates for, for accessibility and, and disability issues, because it's a little bit too easy for me sometimes to think to myself, boy, you don't like it now. <laughs> you should have been around. You yeah. Know, you know, it, it's so much better now, adaptive equipment and accessibility that I, I don't generate the level of frustration that I think other people yeah. do. Yeah. So I really value the people who do that because it takes whatever the cause is, whether it's equity issues based on, you know, on gender or, or, or race or, or, or equity issues associated with disability. It takes, you know, somebody that's got a little bit of a fire burning, you know, to, to, to push things in the way that, that they should be pushed. So, um, so that's a bit of context. Now, returning to your original question, which is more what, what do we need to do now? Um, and my answer is a little bit odd in this one as well. And, and I'll say that using parking as an example, okay? Yeah. In 74, it was difficult, you know, um, to find any place and accessible buildings. Then after ADA, the, the graph moved upwards a little bit and over the next 10 years or so, things got progressively better. You know, there was more handicapped parking spots, new buildings were accessible. And, um, and then we reached a point in society, and this is probably a good news thing maybe, but, but to where disability was less stigmatizing. So now people who used to try and hide their disabilities acknowledge them and ask for accommodations. So, you know, as, a, as an example, back in 1980, I had friends that were maybe single BK amputees who didn't use handicap parking because they didn't want to be uh, uh, labeled as disability. Yeah. And, you know, and maybe that's not wonderful because none of us should have to hide who we are, you know. Um, but we've almost reached a point now, my view, to where, to where I think it's as hard to find parking now, accessible parking, as it used to be before we broadened the definitions of disability and, and were so successful in inviting people to embrace their disabilities. Um, and so I don't know what the answer is to that. You know, maybe we need to, to say there isn't really 10% of the population that has disabilities. It's really 18% you know, and we yeah. need more spaces. Or maybe we need 
two types of spaces. Because um, I don't mind parking at the far distance in the lot. I just need wide enough room, you know. And um, so when the wide spaces are filled up by people who are walking people whose disabilities are um, different, I'll say, you know, and and honestly, some of them are pretty marginal, but, you know, that's a bit of a different discussion. Um, it, you know, it, it, it just is tough. Last year, one time I said, I'm going to count the next 100 times that I'm looking for handicap parking and, and find out how many times I actually get it, excluding my own office, you know, in places, you know, that, um, you know, like if I go to the store or a restaurant and, um, and I succeeded 41 out of 100, you know, so, um, so that tells me that we need to do something about that, whether it's, whether it's redefining de handicap parking, uh, creating again, two levels, you know, maybe, maybe half of them are white signs with blue, you know, and those are not wider, but they're closer and we can get a few more of them squeezed in. And, and there's, you know, only 30% of them that are the wide spots, but those are indeed reserved for people who have mobility impairments that require the use of adaptive equipment, you know, yeah. wheelchairs, walkers and stuff. Yeah. Um, so, so that's where I think we, you know, we're at a new crossroads, which I think is, is again, is great because, because it's an indication that we've made a lot of progress and now, you know, the pendulum is, is swinging. So, so I think it's time to look, you know, uh, closely at that. And you also get dynamics like, um, here's another one that I think is interesting. If you want to sit in that handicapped seating at University of Florida athletic events, and I'm, I'm right here in Gainesville, Florida, um, it's, it's challenging to get those seats. And part of the reason is that, that their process for assigning those seats has, doesn't have an accountability mechanism. And I understand that because there's a large part of the disability community who does who considers it an insult to be questioned, you know, you know, well, what is your disability? Why do you need, you know, so, so all someone has to do is check the box that they have a disability. Okay. And, and even families, there's families that have had season tickets in the handicap park, a handicap seating area. And for so long that I'm pretty sure that whoever it was that that qualified for it has passed away, you know, or is no longer attending. And they just pass those seats along just like regular seats are. So we have to find these little middle grounds or ways to where we can um, have some level of an accountability mechanism without it being uh, insulting or dehumanizing to, you know, to persons with disabilities. And, you know, and, and I get it because when I was first a wheelchair user, I drove a little Jeep Wrangler and I, I didn't even have a top for it. And once in a while, if I pulled into a handicapped parking spot, someone would walk up to me and they would say, hey, dude, this is a handicapped parking spot. And I just nod my head at the wheelchair in the back and they'd say, I have a wheelchair. And they'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. You know, and I'd say no big deal and off they go. Um, but now I don't think people, I think people, including law enforcement, are, are a little bit terrified to question anybody because they're going to be ripped, you know. Uh, you know, so some of us with disabilities probably need to, to accept the fact that if we really
want accountability and and the spaces and accommodations preserved for people who really have disabilities, we may have to trade off being occasionally questioned by yeah. somebody, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I want to move now to uh, wheelchair basketball and other mm -hmm. uh, adaptive sports. You know, I've, I've seen the movie, The Rebound. I've watched mm -hmm. Rising Phoenix. Mm -hmm. um, I've recently spoken to some of our Paralympians who are playing in Spain. Mm -hmm. um, so two part question. One, um, how do we get more collegiate programs that can then translate into people, athletes playing professionally in the US? Mm -hmm. How do we, so let's take part one first, the whole collegiate issue okay. and yeah. Right. Yeah, you know, I think that's a great question because, you know, because it 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 is a challenge and and the challenge has several different dynamics in it. It's not as simple as funding. You know, that's the first one that people think about. We need to help get funding at more institutions. Um, the other dynamic is we have to have athletes that are uh, academically inclined to go to college, um, athletically interested, talented, because the, the level of play in the intercollegiate division is, is high, you know? Um, so just being in a wheelchair and going to college isn't enough to, you know, to be successful at that. Um, it's almost like the dynamic you hear about in the NFL with quarterbacks. <laughs> you know, you'll hear people say there aren't, there's 32 teams, but there aren't 32 elite NFL level quarterbacks. And I don't know if that's necessarily true because, you know, there, but, but their point is, you know, there's a, after about 12 or 14, there's a noticeable gap to the next tier of them. So, so I think we need to do everything we can to support juniors programs, you know, and, and create those opportunities for, um, for younger kids with disabilities to get um, challenging experiences. And, and, and part of it is, is having opportunities available for them in college. So there's something that they are striving for. Um, I think we need also, and, and not everyone agrees with me on this one, but, um, but I think, you know, we have to look at the fact that some of the athletes that are eligible, who have, may have a very minor disability. And, and I think we also need to look at um, a classification system that includes some able-bodied participation. Um, you know, whether we make them 4.5s or 5.0s, but, but to reach the critical mass you know, on teams. And, you know, we, we did a pilot study for about three years in the intercollegiate division, and we grew the division more rapidly by allowing able-bodied to play. And we grew the number of athletes with disabilities. You know, it wasn't simply the addition of able-bodied. And that's because for, you know, Eastern Washington right now is a, you know, is a emerging program. Yeah. And I haven't checked with David. I don't know what they're doing in terms of using able-bodied, but the University of Florida's club team is half of the team is able-bodied right now, you know, and eventually, you know, they'll they'll reach a critical mass and they'll attract more ones, 1.5s, twos, and 2.5s, right, because right. if you have 4.5s that are able-bodied, you need more of the lower classification right. players. Um, and I think this works also with, with the mindset that most young people have, um, including 
persons with disabilities, you know, they, they would prefer to live in an inclusive society, not as segregated protectionist type of an environment. You know, as long as the inclusion of able-bodied athletes isn't at the expense of athletes with disabilities, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, most, most college athletes are talented enough to where they will just say, Oh, somebody able-bodied wants to play, put them in a chair and bring it on, you know, (laughs) you know, it's, and I, so I know it's a little different when you look at maybe some of the juniors programs that have smaller, younger kids and, you know, and, and, um, um, so we have to, you know, if we're going to allow able-bodied anywhere other than the intercollegiate division, you know, um, then we need to look at it very carefully, you know, and, you know, and maybe a limited number in, in some type of a way for managing classification to ensure, you know, that it doesn't cause, you know, young kids with, with more severe disabilities to not be participating. But in the college division, we found that it's worked just making them 4.5s. You know, in, in fact, I don't think we had more than one of those able-bodied players who would have been considered among the best three or four players on their own team, you know? It, right, that's yeah, right. You know, they played, you know, eight minutes a game, you know, they they filled out, they helped at practice because it gave them, you know, a good five on five, you know? Um, I can really only, you know, and, and the eight minutes were valuable minutes and maybe they scored six points, eight points, they were good players, but, but in zero cases, were they the best player on their team? You know, they didn't take over the sport from, yeah. from persons with disabilities. So yeah. I think that's another way to help it. Um, I think what we're doing in the NWBA now with, with attracting sponsorship from, yeah. from organizations that are not purely um, disability type companies, you know, you know, now we have Toyota, you know, we have Molten, you know, uh, you know, several others, you know, they're not all wheelchair manufacturers who are wonderful sponsors, you know, or catheter companies, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're, um, you know, they're broader. And as we see things like that Guinness commercial, you know, from a couple of years ago, um, all of those little societal things to where society acknowledges and we acknowledge as persons with disabilities that we are just part of the bigger tapestry of this society. You know, um, we, we move past the, um, I don't, I don't want to call it patronizing because it's not quite that, but we move past a model to where we are supported because people, uh, emotionally feel sorry and, and want to, you know, we reach a point to where it's in, it, attractive and intriguing to people on its own merits, yeah. you know, and um, and that is a, a, a safer place to be than having to rely on on people to use their extra to help people that are less fortunate. Yeah. So, um, so the second part of the question, I mean, these are definitely elite athletes. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there's no doubt. Right. But then, so. How do we move from, you know, okay, you're playing collegiate to now here's an opportunity for you to play professionally, just like, you know, right. men and women who play college basketball, able-bodied, they go right. and yeah. play. Yeah. So we have that same challenge there that we talked about, even in terms of filling intercollegiate rosters, you know, the, in order for a sport to be appealing professionally, 
you know, it has to attract a fan following, you know, you know, there, there has to be some mechanism there to where it generates revenue, you know, um, you know, or it's philanthropic, you know, so for it to generate revenue, the level of the game has to stay high, you know, so I think whatever growth we have in that area has to be managed in a way that ensures not only competitive equity, but, but competitive quality, you know, so that, so that people are actually seeing something that, you know, and, and you and I have seen that, you know, when we've watched elite, you know, I, you know, I saw Paul Schulte in a, in a NBA all-star game, you know, among the intercollegiate teams that played there, you know, hit half a dozen NBA threes, you know, in, in an exhibition, you know, we've seen guys that tilt their chair onto one wheel, you know, and we see the lower classification players who, um, who may not be as athletically um, amazing, but we see them hit every layup. We see them make, you know, 74% of their free throws, just like in the NBA. So we, the, the, the quality has to be at that level for it to happen. Um, the, uh, and the, the difficulty for this in part is even if, even if we had right now, let's say we had a, a 18 professional league in the United States and we decided tomorrow we were going to begin it. The, the quality spread across eight teams, you know, I don't know if there's a hundred available gifted enough athletes today in the right classification ranges, you know? So, um, so, and maybe there is, you know, but, but maybe, maybe what we can, and and we tried that with division one wheelchair basketball back, you know, from 1996 through about, uh, about 2002, I think we had about six, maybe five or six years of that. And, um, and we fluctuated between seven teams and 10 teams, mostly, um, depending on, you know, what we, and I, there's more talent now. So I think we're, I think, I think we probably could, we probably could field a 12 team league, you know, Um, you know, but, you know, but it's just going to have to be, uh, curated in a way that that um, that ensures um, competitive balance. You know, we one of our challenges when we did division one before was, um, you know, well, I maybe I shouldn't use this as an example because the University of Alabama's uh, NCAA football team seems to be in the league by its own self. But, um, you know, but you have to strike that balance between uh, appreciating, valuing, and honoring the teams that are doing it right and winning without it getting to being a, a point to where other people don't even really want to play because they have no chance of winning, you know? So, um, so what we did the last couple of years is we had a draft of the intercollegiate players and, and that helped us, you know, we distributed the talent around better that way. You know, I was with Dallas at that point and, um, you know, and we just added those last two years really um role players you know from from community teams because we had a talented starting five and we were getting the eighth eighth pick you know so um so it has to be well thought out and rolled out in a way that ensures that it that it's got some level of success from the start because if it rolls out 
unsuccessfully, then you you're worse off than if you hadn't tried it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're getting towards the end of our interview. Um, what are some final words that you'd like to leave our listening audience with? You know, whether it's about adaptive sports, um, inclusive, mm -hmm. inclusiveness, whatever you'd like to say. Yeah, I think I would just say that you know that that um, you know we live in the most dynamic society that we've ever lived in. You know, in terms of access to information and and uh, you know not just the internet, but you know, but you know, you buy I can buy something now and it'll be on my porch online and it's on my porch tomorrow morning if not tonight. You know, so so we have to embrace these types of things, you know, if we want to grow and be a part of what's next, you know, so we have to be prepared to move with the times. Um, and from my perspective, if that means inclusivity in terms of, you know, of, of including able-bodied athletes and see, that's the other thing that would help, pro, you know, that pro wheelchair basketball, we could field probably 16 teams if we were allowed to attract able-bodied you know, uh, uh, athletes as well. So we have to do those, you know, we have to be creative and do those types of things. You know, I, I'm, I'm very optimistic personally with the, you know, with the NWBAs, you know, it, there's, there's growing pains that come with changes in leadership and changes in, in philosophy and any organization that at its core has competition <laughs> is always going to have days to where people are don't like a decision that was made because it doesn't benefit them directly you know so we all have to look at this and say what do we collectively need to do that's in the best interest of the growth of the sport yeah. you know even if it uh, threatens my little dynasty in some way you know yeah you know so so i think you know, I think to the degree that our leadership can can keep that con mindset and the rank and file can understand and appreciate that that's what's happening, um, you know, then I think we give ourselves the best chance to, you know, to grow. Great. Doug, thanks so much. Great discussion. Yeah, yeah my pleasure. Thank you.